Just over two years after being elected as governor of Kansas, Laura Kelly announced in December she would seek re-election in 2022. Amid the ongoing fight with COVID-19 and a potential budget shortfall, Kelly said it was a no-brainer to give it another go. I'm Noah Taborda. Welcome to the Kansas Reflector podcast. On this episode, senior reporter Tim Carpenter sits down with the governor to discuss COVID-19 response, goals for the 2021 legislative session, and motive behind a second gubernatorial campaign. We did not have our usual audio recording hardware for this sit-down, so please excuse the lower audio quality. You'll also hear from Kansas Reflector Editor-in-Chief Sherman Smith later on. For now, here's Tim Carpenter with the governor on her quest for re-election. Why are you running? Because I'm not done yet. Um, you know, when I ran in 18, uh, I ran because uh, the state was in such bad shape. Uh, and I really felt uh, that I was the only Democrat who could get through a primary, get through the general, and then win. Uh, and, you know, there was, there was sort of no choice. Um, and I think we were able to get in uh, and, and bring some good people on board in the cabinet and other uh, positions. And we, we've really been able to, to turn some things around. You know, we, you know, we said we were going to fund education. We funded education, you know, and got us out of courts. Um, I'm committed to economic development growing Kansas. And so, you know, look what we've been able to do. Um, you know, we have we just broke the record for the most new capital investment in in a single year uh, last week, uh, mm. and all of that during this pandemic. Um, so we just haven't taken our eye off that ball. In fact, we haven't really taken our eye off any of the balls that we had in play. Uh, you know, we got the transportation plan uh, passed and through. We created the Office of Broadband uh, Development, put the first state general fund money uh, towards broadband. Um, been trying to protect and upgrade our IT systems as much as uh, we possibly can, mm-hmm. um, uh, but also working to protect those so that at least if, if we can't make great advances, we don't take great steps backwards, which is what I sense that one of the vulnerabilities that the Republicans see is they're going to claim, as the Republican Party did the other day, you've, you've slowest economic recovery of in you know, however they quantify it, they're going to say that you you didn't do enough to sustain a good economy during COVID. You know, and I honestly don't know exactly where they find those numbers, but, you know, so I, I'm, I don't sense that they are real, uh, but, you know. You know, you, you close the schools and, and they're going to, and businesses, and they're going to say that you tanked the economy and then didn't have the wherewithal to speedy recovery. Well, I, you know, quite often I don't want, know what they're talking about. The, the fact of the matter is, yes, we did shut things down, and we did it because we didn't know what this virus would do, yeah. and, and we had to have time to get our battle plan in place. Uh, and we did that with what we did with the schools. I mean, was it, was it perfect? No. But we had probably one of the most sophisticated online learning uh, structures in place within the country within a matter of days. Uh, you know, we shut down our businesses to figure out how we could open our businesses safely. And we did that. We worked with the various industries. You know, we, we opened up our, our hair and nail salons um, within a matter of weeks, and we have not had any problems in those because we did it right. Um, you know, we have, we have opened our restaurants and bars as much as, as the virus allows. 
Uh, do people want more? Yeah, but every time you know that gets tried, you know, then there's then you slip back because it doesn't work. You can't have people going to a bar uh, and. You know, why do you go to a bar? Do you go to a bar to have a beer? No, you go to a bar to socialize. Uh, you what do you think about what the legislature did, sort of an undercut your authority on emergency orders? Well, I think in retrospect, um, it, it clearly was a, a bad idea uh, because what it did was you know, move the authority to you know, put in place uh, preventive health measures, you know, put it back on, on the counties. I don't know how many of those county commissioners really wanted that authority, but that's where it was. Mm -hmm. uh, and as we've seen, you know, initially, you know, very few of the counties uh, accepted any of the mandates. You know, this time around, though, when we came back and did it again, I think we have over 80 of our counties uh, have either put in place the mandate that we suggested or came up with a modified one for themselves. But we have that and some cities uh, on top of those counties. And uh, you know, putting in the statewide unified testing strategy, you know, not doing it um, by piecemeal, not leaving it to the local health departments, you know, that all of that's working. Uh, we really are starting to to get some control. Okay. Do you think they're going to double down on the emergency powers that you have? Uh, they come back in twenty twenty one. Try to clip you again? Yeah. You know, I I don't know uh, what they will do. I think it depends upon. Uh, how much they've learned from from what we know now right. uh, versus what we knew when they clipped the wings. Right. Um, you know, if if they really look at the facts uh, and deal with that, then they'll recognize that if there needs to be some modification, fine. But you know, the ability to do uh, a unified, uh, systematic approach to this makes much more sense. is much more effective than a patchwork. Um, and I think the, the other thing they'll, they'll recognize is that, you know, I've not come back in, even with, you know, statewide, you know, when we did the next mass mandate, mm -hmm. it was, if you've already got yours in place, you know, we'll do that. We've got, we'll give you a week to put one in place. Um, so we, yeah. we didn't just... Mask 2.0 seemed more a, a collaborative thing, a compromise. We knew, we knew so much more. Yeah. Uh, then we knew what could work, and so that's why we changed our approach. Seems reasonable to give people grace for whatever decisions they made about COVID in March or April, given what is known now. I mean, some people had some hysterically bad ideas that COVID was baloney and things like that, or it was going to kill us all. I mean, there's a whole spectrum of, right. of but it seems to be appropriate to give people, do you, would you agree? You know, I'm, I'm don't go, I don't look backwards and hold anybody okay. responsible for anything they did. You know, we, we've got to deal with what we know now and what opportunities we have now. So, Any concerns about vaccine distribution as we get going along here and it's more and more available and people being upset that they aren't closer to the front of the line? Do you think there's going to be trouble? I don't know if there'd be trouble. There'd be a lot of grumbling uh, uh -huh. and uh, a lot of angst about that. Um, but... You know, we're going to just try to be as open and honest and forthright with folks as we possibly can so that, you know, while we won't be able to get everybody vaccinated by January 1st, uh, at least we can eliminate some of the um, stress they feel about when will they be. So we hope to have shortly after the first of the year, you know, sort of the, the, the list and people will be able to figure out when they're on the queue 
you know, it'll always be a bit of a moving target because what if we don't get the number of vaccines uh, we thought we were going to get? You're at the mercy of the supply. We are at the mercy of the supply. Um, Just in a brief, I just want to briefly ask you about Trump's insistence upon saying he probably didn't really lose the election. What do you think about a a national government leader who... uh, takes such a position. It could be Canada. It doesn't have to be the United States. But what do you make of that? You're, you're chief executive. Mm-hmm. You know, Tim, the, one of the ways I survive is I don't think about those things that often <laughs> um, because I have other things I need to think about right here. Uh, and, you know, when, when it's something I can do absolutely nothing about, uh, I tend not to dwell on it for All right. very long. So I really... There, what, what can I think? Well, I just didn't know among fat cat or government officials if you just, <laughs> your peers, if you thought it was foolish, you know, or genius on his part. You know, I honestly, and this is the, the honest truth, I haven't had a chance to talk to any of my peers. Uh, we've all been so busy doing. Let's talk about the budget. You're going to come down, you're going to have to present a budget. There's not going to be the state local stimulus. Yeah, it's not in there. That's gonna that's gonna make your <laughs> job harder, well right? Yeah. Right, make your job harder. What kind of cuts are you going to be talking about in that budget? Are there ca- there's categories that you have to be turning to? Well, um, yeah, I am still working on the budget, and I am doing everything that I possibly can uh, to protect the critical areas, uh, and I. I've sort of already outlined them to you know, protect education, uh, protect uh, the transportation program, protect economic development, protect information uh, technology, and, and maintain investment in broadband. Uh, I'm doing everything I possibly can, at the same time ensuring that we don't uh, shred the safety net uh, that we have, that we've, we've actually knitted back together the past one place years. I think about cuts would be, for example, just to choose one out of a hat, higher ed. And I know they've struggled due to the lack of tuition payments, but these are big institutions. There's more and more going to go online. That's less costly. Don't need so many buildings. Is Are, are there savings to be had there? Well, you know, I, I, I hear people say that, but you have to understand that just because you go online doesn't mean the buildings go away. Uh, you still have to maintain them. They're still there, but like docking, them. empty. What? Well, no. Uh, you know, so the idea that it's cheaper uh, to educate online, uh-huh. you know, may be ultimately true, but in the short term, and I'd say even to the, the several years out term, it won't make any, any difference in their overhead. So higher education has already taken some serious cuts. What other issues do you want to talk about during the 21 session? Medicaid expansion, I'm sure you'll make that pitch. I'm not sure if there are people with open minds. Well, we'll, we will find out because, yes, we will continue to push for Medicaid expansion. Uh, We will also, we want to talk with the the legislature about um, redistricting and Mm -hmm. establishing uh, a nonpartisan process. uh, So a nonpartisan process, do you think that's possible? I think it needs to be done. Yeah. Well, if it might we be want, more equitable, but we, that's if not... If we want fair elections, which everybody's been talking about, yeah. then that's how you do the it. The game is you to, start to create out by advantages. not gerrymandering. You would need a few uh, Republicans who maybe don't care about getting reelected to come over to your side on those maps whenever those the voting starts on that, right? 
That's all you would need. You, they, the Republicans have two-thirds majorities. Right. So as a, as a mathematical matter, they can control what maps you veto. I think I need three senators and one or two reps. So if you have a few, a handful of good friends among the Republican caucus, you can still be a big player in redistricting, correct? Yes, this is true. And that has to be part of the strategy, right? Uh, well, you know, I always You can do it out. nicely or you can do it the other way. <laughs> I always start out uh, trying uh, the, the cooperative uh, approach, uh, you know, let's work on this together and, and figure out a solution. And, and that's how I'm going to approach this. Just for the sake of clarity, now speaking is Editor-in-Chief Sherman Smith with his own question for the governor. I've been looking into the financial problems at St. Francis, and you know, I wonder what your perspective is on the severity of what happened there, but also, as I talk to legislators, they see this as perhaps the catalyst for establishing the Office of the Child Advocate, and I wonder if you would support that initiative. The Office of Child Advocate would do absolutely nothing to rectify the situation at St. Francis. Uh, you know, that really is a board issue, uh, and that Child Advocate Office would do nothing uh, to change the dynamics between the CEO, the CFO, uh, and the board. Uh, you know, I think that's an internal issue for St. Francis, and certainly, you know, DCF is on it, and uh, with investigations and, and whatever else, and we'll make sure. But that's that's a board issue. Uh, they, uh, it's a board issue. And the, one of the concerns is that DCF had the report for 11 months, and it apparently only communicated with the person who was accused of wrongdoing. And so the idea is that you know people over there could have made their voices known to another. Well, person. and my guess is that when as DCF is doing this investigation and looking at you know what happened, what went wrong, what what do we do differently. That will be uh, one of the concerns because I, 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 probably your article uh, that I read when I thought, oh, you only went to that person. No, you, you, they really should have gone to a board, some board members, uh, and and they didn't. My guess is that that would be part of their report. Every time something like this happens, it reminds me I'm a privatization skeptic because you put the profit motive even into nonprofits, you create problems. These people were robbers and thieves, and they were stealing from kids. What the, is this is poster child for not privatizing things that involves young defenseless children? Well, I, you know, I, I was always opposed to privatization, for instance, of, of uh, our Medicaid program. Um, and particularly, and not because I was against managed care, but I think whenever you put the profit motive in there, and depending upon how you run nonprofits, there are profit motives sure. for certain, if you don't have the right people running it, um, Personal profit will often become part of the issue, even if it's not corporate profit. But uh, I think there are pros and cons. I think, you know, remember that Kansas privatized their foster care system back in the 90s because it was so poorly run uh, by the state. They were under, were they under court order, I believe, at the time? It was, it was a mess. And so Graves, you know, it, and he had some really good people in that world, uh, in the child welfare world, working for him at the time. They really studied the issue and, and I think did the best they could coming up with this solution, which included the privatization of it. Uh, you know, I think you know, we had some problems with it um, another administration ago. You know, what we've done uh, is put a whole lot more oversight uh, on it. 
uh, that and our can't care program. Um, because if with good oversight, good structure, good contract negotiations, uh, and good follow through, I think you can you can make it work. There's a legislative post letter that came out about angel investors, and I know part of when you came into office, you wanted. Uh, to do a review of economic development programs, figure out what works and what doesn't. There was some real criticism of this. Do you follow the audit and what's going on? Uh, the angel, I know, I know what happened. And I'm trying to remember exactly what the uh, outcome of that one was. They weren't, they weren't super laudatory about how it's working out. Yeah, it's tax uh, dollars being funneled into private biz. Yeah, so. and if I, if I recall correctly, that all happened before uh, we got here. Yeah, that was all in place before you became yeah, governor. Exactly. So, you know, one of the things that we charged um, David Tolan with going over there was to really dive deep into our incentive programs, uh, whatever they might be, and figure out um, how they work and how they don't. You know, I think the fact that we were able to end the border wars is probably the biggest thing that we did mm -hmm. in terms of incentives because we were just wasting money. We're taking the incentive monies that we had and, and you know, moving somebody across the river. So uh, we've really changed all of that. And do we still use incentive dollars uh, to attract business? Yes. Yeah. Uh, but the return on investment that we're getting um, is extraordinary. So I think we're, we're getting a better handle on it. Uh, there are there are programs and center programs that we we would like to alter, but they need statutory changes, and we haven't been able to get legislature on board uh, with that. In circling back to COVID, I'm just kind of curious. There's a lot of frustrating things about COVID, the unexpected, and so forth. But is there something that's you just relentlessly walk back to your desk and put your forehead down and say, why can't people accept blank? Why won't people do X? Is there a thing like that? Um, no, uh, there's not. I mean, you know, I studied human development psychology, so... Yeah, so I, you're not surprised? I understand, yeah, and so those kinds of behaviors don't surprise me. Um, frustrate me sometimes, sure. Today's episode of the Kansas Reflector podcast was hosted by senior reporter Tim Carpenter with help from Editor-in-Chief Sherman Smith and was produced by myself, Noah Taborda. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thanks for listening.